0: Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content from all of our podcasts, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit the dsrnetwork.com buy. There's no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. Nine, twelve, ten,
1: 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you not too far from New York City. We are joined today by Rosa Brooks. Rosa holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center, where she also serves as, and all of you in the audience can now join along with me as we say this Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes. How are you, your centers and your institutes, Rosa?
2: I'm feeling very centered today.
1: That's very nice. Better centered than institutionalized, I guess. (laughs) Um,
2: But I tell myself.
1: We're also joined by our friend Kim Gaddis. Kim is a contributing writer at The Atlantic and author of the book Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-Year Rivalry that Unraveled Culture, Religion, and Collective Memory in the Middle East.
3: A great book. You really should read it. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, David. Great to be on again. And where are you right now? I'm in Beirut.
1: So Kim is in Beirut, recently returned from the Middle East, and also kind of looks like he just got a haircut. David Sanger, White House and national security correspondent and senior writer at the New York Times. And it's I, I'm sorry, David, but it says here where he has been reporting for more than 38
0: years. How is that even possible? It is really amazing. It's actually like, just call it 40 years and you know, one haircut and make that it.
1: So one of the things that we thought we would talk about here is that, of course, the president and his team returned from the Middle East over the weekend. They went to Israel. They went to Saudi Arabia. They met with MBS. They met with other regional leaders. And the first thing I'd like to do is just sort of get a readout, because it was kind of a trip that had a lot of potential pitfalls. I think the net conclusion is it went pretty well, despite that. But
0: What do you think, Kim?
3: I think it went as well as it could have gone. There were some fraught moments. There were some definite cringy moments, uh, to say the least, like the fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman. If they wanted to avoid a handshake, I'm not sure the fist bump was the right way to, to do that. But overall, I think that it went reasonably well. We need to keep our expectations in check. This is a region that has given a lot of headaches to repeated administrations, the problem is that you may not be interested in the Middle East, but as a president, Biden has discovered that the, interested, the, the Middle East is interested in you as, as America. And there's simply no, no staying away from, from this region. Even if you're competing with Russia, you're competing with China, some of that is happening in the Middle East. I think Biden's visit was reasonably well prepared by the likes of Brett McGurk and Jake Sullivan, and of course, also CIA chief Bill Burns. They've all been to the region in advance of this trip. And there were some deliverables, if you will, or there were some, There was some paving of the road before, before he arrived, including the ceasefire in, in Yemen, without which I don't think that visit would have been possible. And there's just the reality that you cannot ignore a country like Saudi Arabia, no matter, no matter how much we dislike that, no matter what Mohammed bin Salman is guilty of, In a region where you're also trying to be Israel's ally as the United States or trying to counter Iran, there is simply no doing any of that without finding a way forward with Saudi Arabia. It wasn't the kumbaya that some people worried about, but it had to be done, unfortunately. I think it could have been done better. I think we could have had more on human rights, on values. It became very much focused on interests. But in the long term, I think that there is still a desire within the administration to make sure that they're not simply giving their allies in the region with authoritarian tendencies a blank check. President Biden made very clear there would be no more blank checks, but we'll have to see whether he delivers on that in the future.
0: David? I was on trip. It was fascinating. Yeah. I would say that the Israel part of it was a pretty warm embrace where the president felt clearly very comfortable being there. He came at an uncomfortable moment for them when their government had just, you know, fallen apart for the fifth time uh, in recent years. But uh, that didn't seem to particularly get in the way. In fact, he seemed to embrace Prime Minister Lapid in a way that made many in the Israeli press think this was virtually an endorsement of Lapid. To the degree that he got pressure on that trip, It was to advocate for more clearly for a military option against Iran if they were going to need one in order to bolster the nature of the um, negotiations. Since the negotiations aren't going anywhere, that didn't seem to be that difficult. They did have a harder time when they got to Saudi Arabia. First was the fist bump that Kim mentioned. They didn't know going into the meeting what the encounter with MBS was going to look like whether it was going to be a fist bump, an embrace, a hug, a handshake. My personal view is that a handshake would have probably been better than the fist bump. The fist bump looked pretty familiar. And the president was still suffering from the fact that he had referred to him as a pariah state with very little redeeming social value a little more than a year ago. He did talk about the Khashoggi case, but the president did but he didn't do it in the public portion. In other words, when the press was in and that gave an opening to the Saudi foreign minister to say, oh, it barely came up. That's all resolved. It's behind us. I didn't think that looked so good for the administration because they knew the Saudis were going to go play it that way. I think the administration felt pretty strongly that having gotten this meeting behind them, they would now be in a better position to have continued relations with the Saudis And these issues would sort of fall lower on the priority list or at least lower in the news stories than they did this first time. Um, That said, the president has never squared the relationship with the Saudis with his portrayal of the great struggle of our time being between democracies and autocracies. Because if that's where where the struggle is, we know which side the, the Saudis are on there. And he's going to have to explain better what I think was the core of this trip, which was this is a competition in the Middle East to bar the Chinese from making greater inroads and to building up more pressure on the Russians.
2: The fist bump was absolutely worse than a handshake. You know, it, it seems so bro right? I mean, everybody knows that we all shake hands all the time with people we can't stand. It's a it's a formal gesture, whereas the fist bump definitely was cringe-inducing. Uh, it seemed a little too, dude, how are you? That being said, I, you know, I agree with Kim and David. Biden was in an almost impossible situation that we can't just not talk to them. We can't just not talk to anybody. We have to be talking to them. There's You're the president of the United States. You've got a thousand cameras on you all the time your micro expressions will be analyzed. You know, well, does Biden look like he likes him? Does he look happy? Does he look like he can't stand? You know, no matter what you do, you're going to be in trouble somehow. And I think they were, you know, the Biden team was stuck with the unenviable task of trying to thread that needle to say, yeah, we're really appalled by the Saudi's human rights record. We're really appalled, appalled by Israeli actions with regards to Palestinians We're really appalled by el-Sisi, We're really appalled by all these things. But at the same time, there are some stuff that we, you know, there are shared interests and then there are things that aren't necessarily shared interests, but are certainly our interests and we have to talk to them and try to work out some de- deals, even as we let them know that we're appalled by all these things. And it's kind of impossible. I mean, it's, there's, I don't think that there is a good way to do it, right? That there's, there are worse ways to do it. And, you know, the fist bump made it a little bit worse, right? But other than that, I, you know, I, I think that they, I think they did a pretty good job threading that needle. I'm not so sure that there's any major thing that they could have done a lot differently.
1: Kim, you know, you've seen here uh, in the response of David and, and Rosa, this focus on the fist bump, which in many respects is the least important part of the trip. And, yeah, I'm sorry about that. But, you know, I think that the meat of the trip is kind of the to-do list. Is Where where does it take you? What are the deliverables? You mentioned some. I think the, you know, from talking to people in the administration that this is, they see sort of the path back to a sort of functioning relationship with the Saudis lasting 18 months to two years, just, just to get back on on track from where they are. You mentioned Yemen. I think getting a renewal of the ceasefire in August and a step towards a real peace negotiation, a real settlement there, they see as a crucial step in the normalization process. They also, I think, are looking towards the OPEC meeting in August for some sign of moves on production that may help them with the goal that they've got for the fall, which is, I think, keeping the price of oil under $100 a barrel. I think there's a desire to promote the integration in the region. And I think there is also, of course, as David indicated, a desire to figure out what comes next with Iran. The general view I get from talking to people in the administration is we got about two months during which Iran might be able to pick up and take the deal on getting back into the JCPOA. But I also think that if they don't do that, then the next step is going to be to try an alternative to the JCPOA, to get to to something else to manage that. And there were some other steps. The trade-off is clearly being made here between having, and also, by the way, as David also pointed out, I think a big portion of this trip was countering the influence of China and Russia in the region. On things like 5G and other areas. How meaningful do you think all of that is? Do you think it's worth the awkwardness of a trip like this?
3: It's worth the awkwardness if they can build on it in a way that is not only beneficial directly to America's short term interests, but also the long term interests of the region. And that's where. The fist bump, the the human rights, the, um, you know, getting things done with the dictators of the region is an important part of, of the discussion and is something that administration officials need to keep in mind because there is something quite reflexive about coming back to the region because, you know, I'm characterizing or simplifying because you need to discuss oil again with Saudi Arabia. You thought you could wean yourself off it You need to talk to them again about it because there's been this event called, you know, the invasion of of Ukraine. But this is what it's been like forever between the U.S. and the region. And when the U.S. deals with autocrats in the Arab world with short-term goals to serve America's interests while paying lip service or turning a blind eye to abuses of these dictators in the region, whether it's Fattah Hassisi in Egypt today or Hosni Mubarak in the past, or whether it's Mohammed bin Salman, because Mohammed bin, Salman's is, Mohammed bin Salman is not only guilty directly or indirectly for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, he is silencing a whole section of civil society in Saudi Arabia and still keeping people in jail or under travel bans. No one has cracked the code yet of how you align America's interests with its values. But it is important to crack that code because feeding these autocratic tendencies of America's allies in the region ends up blowing up in all our faces. That's why we had 2011 and the Arab uprisings. It's not an equation that works in the long term. And so when you know, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says that human rights are a core strategic interest for the United States. I think he understands, and I think that's what he means, that you need to crack that code. So I'm hoping that this is what they're going to do next, now that they've admitted or accepted that they need to deal with the region. And then there are other deliverables that we see directly in the region, which might be dismissed by some, but which I think are very important, which is to depressurize this region, because this was really becoming a time bomb. Between Ira- Iranian actions in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen, the war in Yemen, the war in Syria, tensions on the border with Lebanon, Lebanon being close to a failed state, um, the dispute between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, the UAE going to war in Yemen and in and in Libya, this was untenable. And so, to try to depressurize all of that, to try to get some more regional cooperation on things like energy with Iraq and Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Israel and Jordan, you know, that's all a real step forward, and you can feel the tension dropping in the region. And of course, you need that regional cooperation to have some kind of guardrail if the day comes where you have to admit there is no reviving the JCPOA. Now, I think it will not be declared dead, but there will be no war. So no war, no deal. And you'll have to count on this regional cooperation to, in essence, build something of a vision for the region where Iran has been sowing chaos and misery. So that's how you counter Iran's influence in the region and its its proxy militias. And I think that's at the very minimum a worthy goal to pursue for the region, to give some kind of sense of horizon for people in this region, because that also serves America's interest. That's one less problem you have to worry about, this cauldron of tension. And then in the longer term, try to crack that code of how you make this sustainable because it benefits the people of the region as well. And that solves other problems like, you know, refugees and migrants. Nobody really wants to leave, neither Beirut nor Damascus nor nor Baghdad. We all want to stay home. But the harder it is to stay home, the the likelier people are to leave. And, And that's something that the U.S. should look at very seriously as well and not kick the can down the road.
1: Similar question, David. Uh, You know, the U.S. relations in the the Middle East have been a roller coaster for a lot of reasons. Obviously, the Bush administration's invasion of Iraq was a disaster. The Obama administration did it, the success of the JCPOA, but on the other hand, did it in a way that alienated a number of, of U.S. friends in the region. Trump embraced some of these autocrats without any concern whatsoever about human rights, both in the Arab states and 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 also you know abusive forces within Israel and just sort of dropped the issue of of Palestinians altogether. So there was repair work to be done. And I think this administration realized, particularly in the wake of the war in Ukraine, that you can't turn away. We need all parts of the world. China's making moves here. There will always be you know concerns about Iran that, you know, and energy and and so forth. And so this is a process. It's not about absolutes. It's not about crossing a threshold on human rights or something else. It seems in the eyes of the administration to be about reengaging, saying this part of the world will always be important to us, and then trying to get on a path where continuous progress justifies that engagement. You think that's it, and do you think this was getting off on the right foot?
0: I think it was, but it gives you a sense of how difficult this was, David, that President Biden had to be talked into this by his aides. He was deeply reluctant to take this trip a number of months ago, and it took a, a lot of work, I think, from the NSC, Brett McGurk, and others to convince him that he had to get on that pathway. He got there. He kept saying, this is a meeting with the GCC that happens to be the Gulf Cooperation Council that happens to be in Saudi Arabia. I'm not really visiting Saudi Arabia. Then he showed up and the first thing he did was visit the can, who was obviously quite ill, and then went into that meeting with, with MBS, the one that was preceded by the phoned fist bump. So it sure ended up looking like a meeting with the Saudis. And the fact of the matter is they had important business to do they had to do it. There was no way to do it without rehabilitating MBS. That was the price they had to pay. They knew it. The Saudis were waiting for them to need the Saudis more than the Saudis needed them. The moment came and MBS exploited it. I and mean, this was like real power politics at work here. Now, for all the reasons Kim laid out, that was important in the region. And there's one more. I actually think the most important agreement that they signed in the course of this thing is one we haven't discussed yet. It was one to put together a pilot project in 5G and 6G with the Saudis. Why is that important? Because they needed a prototype in the Middle East to show that the United States had an alternative that's called Open RAN for Open Radio Access Networks to what the Chinese were doing with Huawei. And as we've discussed on many previous podcasts, who controls your network controls your country. And the idea that Huawei would go and wire all of Saudi Arabia and in a time of conflict over Taiwan would have that to hold out over the Saudis was something that they didn't really want to go let happen. Now, when we asked the Saudis about this and the foreign minister, Prime Minister uh, Adol Jabir, he said to us, look, we want many different suppliers here. He was not talking about throwing the Chinese out. So their strategy is clearly continue to play the Chinese off against the Americans. That would be my strategy if I was them, because that's MBS's greatest purchase on, on power. Biden didn't linger. You know how Biden's always running late because he's always shaking hands and, you know, always hugging people and always like talking about more foreign policy stuff. He left Saudi right on time, if not a little early. That told you a lot.
1: Yeah, I would like to talk about this in the, in the broader context of, of where U.S. foreign policy is going. But this is normally where we take a break. We say goodbye to a lot of folks in the general public and say, if you want to listen to the whole podcast, you should become a member. Sign up. Go to the DSRnetwork.com. Click membership. It's about the cost of a latte per month, and you get great conversations like this and all the other ones that we have each week, and uh, everything from hearing from young voices in foreign policy to discussions of what's going on with the January 6th committee to weekly discussion about foreign policy and national security, and some new things. So go to the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member. Uh, The best is definitely yet to come. And if your members stand by, we'll keep going.